Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, open our hearts to hear what it is today that you want us to receive from you. Amen. We're going to hear the Bible read now. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of will, of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each one of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Thanks so much, Maureen. 
Uh, well, we need God's help this morning, uh, so I'm going to pray again. Uh, so, um, there, let me pray. Our Father, uh, every word that proceeds from your mouth is good and holy and right and true and life-giving. So we pray for your grace now, your help, that by your spirit you might open the eyes of our heart to your word. Uh, please, our Father, uh, we pray that you'll have your way among us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, well, you might have heard the conversation in the last week about how the, uh, the late Her Majesty the Queen should be referred to. The front runner seems to be Elizabeth the Great. Have you heard that? Uh, there's a photo, should be a photo on the screen. <clears throat> but there is an alternative title that has been campaigned for. Uh, you might have heard this news during the week. There's an alternative title for Her Majesty uh, that someone's been campaigning for, a lord um, in England. Uh, and uh, he points out that there have been many kings and queens in history who've been called the great. But, and this is a quote from him. He said, "The mark of Her Majesty is what we've seen this last week. Uh, is what we've seen this last week so many times. <clears throat> that pledge, which she made when she was 21, that she would dedicate her entire life to serving the nation, and again at her coronation when she made the same promise to God, and she fulfilled that. It's just quite remarkable that two days before she died there." She was a little old lady with a cardigan on, leaning on a stick, obviously very ill, dying in fact, but still continuing her service and her duty in passing the power to Liz Truss. Quite remarkable. Uh, she was completely faithful all of her life and that is how she should remember it. So this person is recommending instead of Elizabeth the Great, he recommends we say Elizabeth the Faithful. Elizabeth the Faithful. Um, anyway, it's, uh, whether or not that gets adopted, it's just quite interesting, isn't it? Quite a revealing comment. There, have been, there are many different ways of being great. Uh, some of them are pretty horrible. Uh, Genghis Khan was known as the Great Khan, <laughs> uh, but he's quite a different monarch to Elizabeth. Um, he was great due to his brutal military victories. But the, the late queen was, uh, had a greatness, a, a different kind of greatness about her, right? She was a devoted follower of Jesus... And her greatness was particularly Jesus-shaped. It was a Jesus, a cross-shaped kind of greatness. A greatness that expressed itself in self-giving service, in committed faithfulness to her promises. And that's so unusual. And part of the reason this is getting picked up at the moment, it's so unusual because <clears throat> it's, it's unusual in the world that we live in, this kind of faithfulness, isn't it? Uh, we live in a world of unfaithfulness so often, of easily kind of letting go of our promises, easily dropping one thing and picking another up. And I think we see this especially in our society when it comes to sex and relationships. Uh, if the assumptions of our of a kind of secular culture are true, if there's no higher reality above the, ourselves, uh, and if our bodies are just our own for our own personal enjoyment, then it, it just doesn't make sense to pursue the kind of faithfulness in a romantic relationship, especially if I fall out of love, if that's what's holding me together, or I fall out of it, um, or, or my immediate desires aren't being fulfilled. Well, the Corinthians had a similar view, uh, and we saw that last week, uh, if you're here or you listened in. Um, 
they, they thought we belong to no one but ourselves. Our bodies are just temporary kind of appetite machines, remember that? And they're going to be destroyed anyway, so fulfilling my appetites has no moral weight to it, uh, whether it's eating or whether it's sex. But Paul pointed us to this last week. The gospel gives us a much richer way to understand ourselves. What did he say? We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Our bodies are not playgrounds. Our bodies are temples. And they are for the Lord, not for sexual immorality. We saw last week too how that these Christians in Corinth were being more influenced by Corinth than by Christ. Um, the, the ancient Greeks thought that they had this idea that physical reality was kind of lower and uh, a, a lower, lesser reality than the spiritual. It was really the spiritual kind of plane that mattered. And, and some in the church took this to mean that it didn't really matter what they did with their bodies. So that's what we looked at last week. They could go visit prostitutes. They, it just didn't matter to God uh, because God's interested in spiritual things, not bodily things. But when you come to chapter 7, the one we're looking at today, it seems like there were also some in the church who kind of had the same basic assumption about bodies and souls and all of that. They, they had the same basic assumption, but they took the opposite approach. So instead of saying our bodies don't matter, so let's just indulge them, they were saying, if we're going to be really spiritual, we need to deny our bodies completely. And so I think that's, it's, it's a little bit hard to know, but I think that's what's behind uh, the, the, the questions that are behind this chapter. Some are asking, now that we've come to know Jesus, we've come to enter into his kingdom, wouldn't it be better to stop having sex altogether, even for those of us who are married? And they'd written to Paul about this, and his response, I think, is just remarkable. Uh, we're going to take three weeks to work through this chapter and reflect on what, how Paul kind of responds to this. Uh, but before we dive in, I do want to acknowledge that this is just, it's for many of us, a difficult topic. It brings up unique hurts for many people. On one level, all of us carry scars and regrets when it comes to family life. But for some of us, those scars are deeper and more raw, and it's just been an effort for you to get here this morning, or maybe to log on and listen online. And I just wanted to thank you for that. And I want to assure you that God knows you and loves you, uh, and that his word is good. Every situation is different and complex, and we're, we're not going to be able to touch on everything today. Uh, there's more to say um, when it comes to the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce and singleness, things we're going to touch on over the next few weeks. Um, there's, much, there's more to say than this, but I'm going to try and focus on what this passage does say for us. Um, another kind of disclaimer before we dive in, you might also be thinking, uh, is it really worth tuning into all this if it doesn't apply to me? Maybe you're married and you think, well, how do Paul's instructions to single people apply to me? Or maybe it's vice versa. But friends, if we are a family in Christ, if we are united in him, uh, then I do need to know God's word for my brother or sister who is in a different life situation to me so that I can support them, encourage them, and they me. So I, I want to urge us all, we're going to focus more today on, um, on marriage and a couple of weeks on singleness, 
But I want to urge us all to take this whole chapter to hearts as a family in Christ. So, uh, having said all that, let's dive in. So, Paul, uh, uh, the Corinthian Christians had written to Paul, um, and you see that in verse 1. Let's have uh, verse 1 up on the screen. Uh, They said, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, So this is Paul writing in response to a letter that they have sent him. Up till now, he's been noticing issues in the church and he's really concerned about them and he's initiated that, but now he gets to the the things that they've written to him about. Uh, And he basically says, in response to this question, he basically says, if you're married, if you're married, give your whole self, your body included, to your marriage. That's what it looks like for you to glorify God with your body. It's not a less less spiritual thing. Uh, Verse 2, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Wow, okay, there's so much in here. And this was utterly countercultural, different, unique, transforming uh, in the culture that it was written into. It was a unique kind of teaching. In the ancient world, no one, no one would have batted an eyelid at the start of verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Uh, everyone thought that in the ancient world, but what no one had ever said or thought, what was utterly revolutionary was what Paul goes on to say, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. You notice how mutual this whole paragraph is. Paul go, it's like all the way through, Paul goes out of his way to make sure we get that he's, he's saying exactly the same thing to both the husband and the wife. He addresses them both in exactly the same way. In fact, down in verse 5 and 6, if you keep reading on, uh, Paul can think of only one reason why a married couple might possibly stop giving themselves to each other. And that's for a special season, for, for a special season of prayer. But notice there too, that is by mutual consent. Mutual consent. And just for a limited time. So this is, this is totally revolutionary. <laughs> Um, in the culture that was written to and in our culture today. And notice, too, how this picture, it's not, a, it's not in any way about each partner taking from the other. It's not in any way about each partner taking from the other. It's about each partner giving to the other, not taking from. There is no place here for demanding rights. This isn't about my rights. This is about my obligations, Uh, Paul says, my duty, our duty. Now, that sounds a bit cold, maybe, but I think it's actually a beautiful picture of self-giving love. If you're married, sex is not primarily for you. It's for your spouse. Friends, this is so important. Uh, And I think it's worth sort of just pausing at this point and acknowledging that this it's one reason for us why it's so important is that this text has been misused by abusive spouses. 
Paul is not teaching here that a spouse can demand sex when they want it. That is a horrible twisting of God's word. And if you have used this passage to justify that in your marriage, you must repent and stop it. Uh, If your spouse is insisting this from you, know that it has no basis in God's word. Paul does not say a wife must take authority over her husband and a husband must take authority over his wife. That's the wisdom of the world. But we have the wisdom of the cross. The image here is cross-shaped. It's It's one of each partner freely giving themselves to the other for the other person's pleasure and for their holiness to help them not be tempted by Satan. So friends, please don't read this and hear this and think, oh, my spouse really needs to hear this word. (laughs) If you're married, if you're married, you're meant to read this and think, not how can I get this from my spouse, but how can I give this to my spouse? Sex as God designed it is fundamentally self-giving, not self-taking. It's not a transaction. It's not something you're owed. It is a way of giving your whole self to your spouse. Uh, That's one reason, that's one very good reason, I I think, why sex is for marriage alone. Um, Author Tim Keller puts it like this. Hopefully that will come up on the screen. Yeah, he says... Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller, in a great book called The Meaning of Marriage, they say, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally, (laughs) mutually, one to another, say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. We must not use sex to say anything else. Really helpful quote, I think. And I think what we get here in this opening of chapter 7 is a really rich picture of faithfulness in marriage. Sometimes we can downplay faithfulness and we just say, like, kind of equate it to not committing adultery. You know, sure, we have a terrible relationship, but at least I've been faithful. God's picture of a faithful marriage is much richer than that. It's a positive relationship of mutual, self-giving love. I think it's captured really beautifully in those traditional marriage vows we say, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part, according to God's holy ordinance. Well, for Paul... I think all of this is fueled by his understanding that marriage isn't, it's not an interruption. It's not something unspiritual that gets in the way of being spiritual, of living a, a, a godly life. It is God's gift. And for those he has given it to, it's a primary, a key kind of arena for expressing and growing in your godliness. I think that's what verse 7 is about. Um, Paul was single at this point, a bit hard to know whether he had been married and is maybe a widow or um, maybe he's been single his whole life, but at this point we know he was single and, and we'll, we're, we're going to see in a couple of weeks that he has a very high view of singleness. He promotes it as a holy and fulfilling state in God's kingdom. And I think that's kind of um, sort of what he's touching on here in verse 7. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but... 
Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Sometimes this verse has been interpreted as meaning there's kind of some special gift of singleness. So some people have a kind of spiritual superpower of being single. The gift of not caring too much about relationships and sex and being really content in singleness. Now, there, there are people who have experiences like that, I think, but I don't think that's actually what's going on in this verse. Um, I think Paul is simply saying, the state you're in now, whether it's married or single, is God's gift to you. So receive it. Live in a way that honours him in that. If you're married, that means giving yourself bodily, wholly to your spouse as they give themselves bodily and wholly to you. But what if you're unmarried? Um, Paul goes on, uh, as I've been saying, uh, we're going to focus much more on this in a couple of weeks. He goes on, he has a lot to say directly to those who are unmarried in the second half of the chapter. But I think he anticipates it here as you look on to verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. If you have your Bibles open, you might see a footnote there on unmarried. It can also be translated widow, widowers. So uh, it, it, I, th- I think that's probably what Paul has in view here. Uh, numerous reasons for that, but you can ask me later. Uh, I, I think he's speaking to those who were once married but whose spouses have died. But either way, you can see that he upholds the goodness of remaining unmarried. More on that later on. But it's not an issue if they do marry. If they find themselves attracted to someone else, in verse 9, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I think you see Paul's real pastoral sensitivity here. This is a case-by-case thing. He's not kind of laying down hard and fast rules in this regard. So maybe there's a widower in the church in Corinth. Paul says he does want them not to undervalue the gift of their state of being unmarried, um, the goodness of that. It's not a lesser or a, a less or an unfulfilled state. But he also says, look, if there's an opportunity to get married, and you want to, especially if there's the danger of sexual temptation with someone, then go ahead and get married. That's, that's good too. So that's Paul's word for those who are unmarried. What about for those who are in strained marriages? I think that's the kind of category Paul turns to now in the, in the rest of this, passages, of this passage. Uh, the, the Bible gives us a beautiful picture of marriage. It's sort of grounded in the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. Man and wife becoming one flesh for life. But we all know that we live in a Genesis 3 world, right? A fallen world, a world scarred, by sin and selfishness and hurt and pain. What Paul goes on to do is he, he paraphrases a teaching, a direct teaching of Jesus. Uh, in Matthew 19, you might know this story. Um, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they try to trap him and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So there was this kind of culture of easy divorce in the ancient world and especially for men to women. And in response, Jesus goes back to the opening chapters of Genesis. He says, well, and he points to that and he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
He talks about, Jesus talks about divorce as being permitted uh, because of hardness of heart. And he, and he does point out that sexual unfaithfulness is something that can irretrievably wreck a marriage and legitimately lead to divorce. But where he points our attention is that's not God's good design. And in God's kingdom, his, in God's kingdom, his people pursue faithfulness to his design, even in this fallen world. So he, Paul says in verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. That is, this, this is sort of flowing out of Jesus' direct teaching. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Friends, there's much more to say here. Um, in the messiness and pain of a broken world, perhaps you have lots of questions about exceptions and what ifs. I think there is more to say, but I do think that there is never less to say. This is God's good intention. We need to believe it. Those of us who are married need to pursue it. Those of us who are unmarried need to support it. And friends, if your marriage is in trouble, I just want to urge you, please, to reach out for help, to pursue God's good design. Ask for help. We would love to help as we're able as a church, um, as the pastors of the church. We'd love to refer you to professional help if you need it. By God's power and with the support of your church family, marriages can turn around. They can and they have and they will. It might take years of hard work and repentance and humility and perseverance, but God can do immeasurably more than we ask or even imagine. So uh, um, there's lots of kind of ways in which that might play out. What I want to uh, give a particular plug for, though, is uh, hopefully there's a slide on, uh, screen, uh, on the screen for a marriage enrichment night coming up up at Trinity City in, the, in Upper Adelaide. Uh, it's a Thursday night, so a bit of an effort to get up there. But you could make a night of it or um, uh, get someone to look after the kids if you, uh, if you need to. Uh, it might not work for everyone, but a great opportunity. And I just want to say about these marriage enrichment courses, they're not for, pe they're not for, um, not for just when your marriage is on the rocks. Um, it's kind of like you, you get your car serviced regularly, right? How much more important to regularly take time out to work on your marriage? Um, so that's the kind of thing that can be really helpful. But what about another strained situation? The last verses of this passage, Paul talks to those believers who are married to an unbelieving spouse. Uh, it's a situation that Jesus didn't directly refer to or, or teach about. And I think that's why Paul says in verse 12, I, not the Lord, say this. I don't think this means that we should sort of discount this. It's not inspired scripture or something. It's just that Jesus didn't talk into this scenario. And, and again, Paul says, pursue God's good design. If your partner is willing, stick with it. It's not more spiritual to separate yourself from them. Your marriage is still God's gift. 
probably, I think, what's in mind is people who are converted after marrying and um, find themselves in a situation where they're married to a a non-Christian spouse. Paul's going to later, later in the chapter, he's going to urge those who are looking to get married only to marry someone in the faith. But if for whatever reason you find yourself married to someone who is an unbeliever, then Paul says, stay married to them. Um, if, if they are willing to con- continue and commit to that, stay. And the, one of the reasons he gives is he says, you will bring a sanctifying effect into that household. I think that's what Paul means when he says the spouse and the, your kids are being holy or set apart, sanctified. Uh, it, it, what it can't mean, it doesn't mean that they are kind of automatically saved because of your faith. That would fly in the face of everything Paul teaches elsewhere. Uh, I think it's saying you bring your spouse and your kids into the blessings that flow out of the gospel. You connect them with Jesus' community. Uh, you, you give them opportunities they wouldn't have had otherwise to be prayed for, to hear the gospel, and perhaps down in verse 16, even to be saved themselves. Uh, but Paul does say in verse 15, if the spouse does leave, he says, let it be so. Don't fight it. You're not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. I take it that this means that this person is not bound to the obligations of that marriage and is free to remarry if they want to and if that's wise for them. Now, it's, it's worth pointing out at this point, this is an area that Bible-believing Christians do disagree on. They have different sort of takes on. But taking Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching together, I think that God's Word teaches us that there are circumstances such as sexual unfaithfulness or being abandoned by your spouse, where with tears we will recognise that the hurt done is too deep, perhaps a spouse is too unwilling to reconcile, and where divorce is appropriate, and where someone is no longer bound to that marriage. Uh, Every situation is unbelievably complex. (laughs) Uh, and needs to be approached with both grace and truth. Uh, One question that gets asked here is, are there other circumstances that might apply? Well, I think we need to be very careful, but I think so. Uh, Paul says the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. Uh, I think abuse is one such circumstance. In a way, it's a form of abandonment, I think. But notice in all of this that God is on the side of the victim, of the vulnerable, of the one sinned against. All marriages involve two sinful people, okay? Uh, But I think the Bible does help us, uh, allow us to recognize that there are circumstances in which one person is primarily the victim of their spouse's serious and ongoing sin. So I do want to say, if your spouse has destroyed your marriage through their evil actions, and of course, um, that's, there's so much behind that, but if that is the case, you are not bound. God has called you to peace, and there may be some who need to hear that. 
But having said that, those kind of extreme circumstances that are touched on here and that Jesus refers to, having said that, our instinct as those who know God's good design, I think the instinct of a Christian person will be to look for signs of life, to shelter whatever flame is still there, to pursue faithfulness and reconciliation. And friends, we have that instinct, not only because of God's good design in creation, that this is all grounded in, but because of the outworking of his faithful love in the new creation through the gospel. Uh, When we started looking at this letter last year, we saw the way in which the whole letter is framed by Jesus' death and resurrection at the start and the end of the letter. And the whole letter answers the question, what does it look like to live in in the framework of the gospel, live gospel-shaped lives? What Paul says here in this chapter makes sense in that framework. I think it doesn't just make sense. It is beautiful and life-giving and truthful. And as those who are married among us, as those who are married among us give themselves to their marriages, pursuing faithfulness, seeking reconciliation when things are tough, persevering in self-giving love, it's a sign to our church, to your brothers and sisters here, and it's a sign to the world of the unworldly love and faithfulness of God that he has poured out on us in the gospel. It's a sign of that ultimate marriage that we are all swept up into if we have faith in Jesus. And we're going to sing a song in a moment to kind of recalibrate our hearts to that faithful love of God. It's called the goodness of Jesus. As you live out the lives God has given you in whatever circumstance you're in, entrust yourself to him. He is the faithful God, the utterly faithful God. The song says this, come and find what this world cannot offer. Come and find your joy here complete. Taste the living water, never thirst again. Rest here in his wondrous peace. Let me pray for us. Our God, we've really just skated over very deep issues today. We thank you for your word that it speaks so clearly into uh, uh, not just kind of um, up in the air ideas, but into the everyday of our lives. Our Father, we pray that more and more you will shape us to be those who reflect your will for us, who pursue your good design. Help us when we struggle. Comfort us when we're hurting. Help us to pursue godliness together. And Lord, I pray that any of us who need to sort of um, take this further and chat with someone about it, we'll do that today, soon. Um, We pray, Lord, that you might guard and protect us. And that as we look at one another, and as the world looks on at this community, they might get a powerful glimpse of your wonderful, loving faithfulness to us in the gospel. 
And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.